I'm going to tell you a little of what we've got lined up because some of it might have to go but uh, what we're going to start with which is very exciting in our hero slot we're going to be talking to the award-winning multidisciplined writer Nadia Davids and she's going to take us back in time to the South Africa of the early 90s to the pre-dawn of democracy through the eyes of a very colourful Muslim family and how uh, appropriate is that that we're looking back 20 years on this very uh, auspicious or round about this very auspicious moment and her book is called An Imperfect Blessing. Hopefully also going to be talking to Damon Galgott. Uh, he's going to be talking about his brand new book, uh, which also takes us back to the turn of the 20th century. So what we're going to do is get Nadia in um, so that we can get this started very soon. Uh, we're going to sort of lead you on with what we've got after that as and when we know how long the president will be speaking. So I think what we're going to do is start right away. We've got young Nadia here in the studio with me. And we're going to start with her. Lovely to have you, Nadia. So lovely to be here. Nancy. I know it is because you've been glued to the television watching, <laughs> watching what's going on. How exciting is it? This is the, yeah. the last uh, ANC rally, prior, the CN Gobo rally prior to the elections on the 7th. Will you be here for the elections? I'll, I'll be in Johannesburg. Okay, first, yeah. so you'll be here to I'll be in South Africa. Yeah, absolutely. Good, good. That's exciting. Well, that's a clue. Let me introduce you to Nadia Davids. If you don't know who she is, Listen up, because we're going to tell you. As I said, very versatile writer. She's written plays, articles, short stories, screenplays, uh, which in itself is something of an achievement to do all those different things. But what she has done, uh, finally, is that uh, she's written a novel. It's her debut novel. It's called An Imperfect Blessing. Also something of an achievement, I have to say. It's a very rich book that takes the reader right back to those days. Can you remember those days, 1993 before 1994? And how much have we lived through uh, in these last 20 years? So how appropriate that we should be speaking to you. Welcome. Thank you. Now, the other thing that you need to know about Nadia is that she's a bit of a butterfly, or at least she's a bit of a swallow, because she lives between <laughs> London and Cape Town, but has spent quite a lot of time in the States. I have, yeah. I, I, well, I moved to London five years ago and I took up a full-time post at um, Queen Mary University of London. So that was the that was the impetus to leave New York. But yeah, I had spent a couple of years there. How before. was New York? How was London? Because are you not locked to being here in South Africa? Oh, yeah. I mean, well, uh, New York was sort of fascinating in a particular way. I was finishing off some PhD work when I was there. Um, I was at New York University. And it was, you know, it was, it's a dynamic, fascinating, incredible city. I mean, in terms of sort of urban landscape, I think it's 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 unparalleled in so many ways. Um, and I was also there for the Obama campaign, which was sort of completely riveting and amazing and quite a sort of transitional moment to be there. And then when I came over to the UK, I was there for the next big election when the Conservatives came in. So, um, yeah, I think I seem to be living in st sort of strangely fascinating mm. and, and difficult political yeah. times. World-changing well, times. So those are yeah. viewpoint-changing times, but very, very interesting times. And you feel, you know, I'm thinking, having just finished your book, mm. I'm thinking it's very interesting to have been in all these different places opens up your worldview enormously, yeah. which you would never guess reading your book because it feels like your roots are so very much still here. When you're in other parts of the mm -hmm. world, to, to what extent do you immerse yourself in where you are at the yes. present time? Or do you, is there a little part of you where you're hanging on to? Oh, well, I mean, I think the entire book is a total Walmart exercise in, in nostalgia, right? Of mm -hmm. course. And I was, it was interesting. I was reading, um, I think it was an essay by Joan Didion just yesterday, and she was talking about how... Um, 
One of her novels was an entire exercise in trying to relocate Sacramento, which, of course, is the landscape of her beginning, and that's her birth. And so you have these sort of extremely dense descriptions of streets and places, and uh, yeah, and this is all an act of trying to sort of, I suppose, mitigate some longing for home. So, of course, I mean, I am completely fascinated with Cape Town, and I always have been. And I think, you know, it's something about my formative years are spent here, and sort of, I think, in that way, you're so shaped by place, um, particularly if you go through a big political change with the country mm. I think it does something it sort of marries you to that place um, and you mate for life and that, yeah. that becomes totalizing um, and so I mean I'm you know I find the places that I live in outside of Cape Town very very interesting and I try and engage with them as deeply as possible but everything does seem to be refracted through the lens of South Africa and so I have this completely probably very annoying habits of when I'm in those places saying well in South Africa <laughs> this is how this is how we do things. Yes. Well, as a writer, that's inescapable, isn't it? Because, yeah, I mean, you, it's very, we all know it's a very isolated sort of uh, role to be in. But, but you have to. You have to keep, I imagine you have to keep hanging on to it. So, and also, interestingly, there, you mentioned about your formative years were spent here. And mm. is it so for you, I certainly know it is for me and mm. probably for many, that the memories of your formative years are very powerful for some reason, they or are. at least they, you know, they, they're quite deeply embedded. Yeah. The more recent memories can go, yes. you can let them go, but but it seems, looking reading your book, yes. um, that they've been very strong for you. I suppose they are. I mean, I think there is something, I and mean, I also think that in some ways, never mind life, but in literature as well, in some ways the books that you read at that, at that particular time are the ones that truly shape you and touch you in a very, very specific way. Um, I think everything at that time in your life is so utterly intense, and so... Yeah, I suppose when one has to keep falling back and looking at those things. Having said that, what I have noticed is that the minute I kind of left living in South Africa full time, before that I was able to write about things that were happening in the sort of moments in which they were unfolding or the debates that were happening as they were happening. But as I left, I started writing retrospectively. So the Sissy Gould work was sort of reaching back into you know, much sort of decades back historical past. And this was 20 years um, ago. Yeah. So there is something about... I suppose if you're not living in the country every day in the same way, you can't really write about the texture of the everyday. Um, I think as intimately, it's not really possible. Let's talk about the everyday because mm -hmm. I'm just keeping an eye on the screen yeah, to see if, if the president is going to be standing up there soon. So why this book? Why now? Because the timing seems to be impeccable. I know, um, it's completely... Was that completely <laughs> did you think to yourself, hmm, we're going to be 20 years of democracy, I better quickly put together a novel that looks back? No, Nancy, I had no idea it took so long to write a novel. I started this at the end of 2008 and then I took up my first full-time job and I immigrated to London and I had other sort of large life-changing experiences that take up a lot of time. And so writing the novel was something that was done on sort of the sidelines of that work and trying to find the time. And certainly I didn't think um, that it would be timed. So, um, well, you, your word is impeccably. I wonder, <laughs> I wonder if it Perhaps is imperfectly, might imperfectly, might be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so you started it in 2008. Yeah, the end of 2008. Did you start it with the political... With the political aspect mm. in mind, because mm. whilst it's a story of the Daywood family who are extremely colourful and <laughs> very chatty, um, whilst it started, whilst it, it sort of wraps around them or mm. sort of centres around them, you know, it's also sort of centred around the, the whole political yes. goings on of the time. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to write. Um, there'd been a lot of rhetoric from the little bit that I'd, I'd heard about about politics that had become dull in literature, especially in South African literature, and people wanted to sort of 
um, write against that in some way, but I wanted to write an unapologetically political novel and one that was unapologetically interested in politics. Um, and because that's very, it's a very big part of my life and it's a very big part of what I'm invested in. And certainly all the work I've ever done, whether it was at her feet or whether it was the work on Sissy or my research work, is, is interested in the political landscape and in talking about those things and unpacking them and thinking them through, but trying to do it in a way that is not didactic, um, that, that positions ordinary people at the heart of these quite extraordinary moments. As I didn't want to do uh, another piece of work around um, icons or, or people of sort of grand significance, but rather to focus on the smaller details and, and how those things shift and change people. Yeah, sort of yeah. domestic detail. And, yeah. and what you knew. Yes, in a sense, there is that. I mean, I think it's important to point out, you know, it is it is absolutely a work of fiction. And naturally, you know, as, as most writers, I do draw on what I know, but it is fiction. Um, and I've worked within the confines of biography before, and I, I actually find it quite limiting because you have to then follow a certain narrative structure and, the, you know, one has to follow a certain historical and linear progression. And certainly that's what happened with when I was doing the play on Ghoul. Um, and so... In that sense, the interesting thing for me when I was writing this work was when when the characters actually sort of took on a life of their own and started kind of mapping their own paths. And that's, I think, when any writer finds, finds mm. that moment of excitement is when you're allowed to imagine outside. Yeah. Well, given that it's a complete work of fiction, though, I yeah. imagine there's... Well, a, no, no, there are, of yes, course, yeah. Oh, yes, no, 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 yeah. absolutely. Well, there's the South African completely non-fiction yeah. that runs right through. But, yeah, but, the, but the family are fictional. Yeah. So we start on Friday the 8th of January 1993. Mm. It was her longest summer yet. Mm -hmm. And this is uh, the lovely Alia, who's all of 14, I think, at 14, the time. 14, yeah. Who are the Daywoods and who is Alia? Alia is a 14-year-old girl and um, her family are, she has a sister, Nasrin, who's about 16, and then her parents, Adam and Serena. But more importantly, she has, um, well, not more importantly, but more significantly in terms of the novel, she has a, uh, a paternal uncle called Walid, who is a disenchanted writer and an activist. And um, in many ways, the novel is about these two characters coming of age along with the country. And it's about trying to talk about how history often intersects with the present in very, very kind of life-changing and dynamic ways. So while it is 93 and the entire country is absorbed and the build-up to the election and um, these characters are going through their own uh, personal processes, there's also this hovering shadow of 86 and the state of emergency. So it's set into time periods um, in the book. Yeah, absolutely. We, we do whistle through back to yeah. 86 later on in the book and then yes. come forward again. So, um, Alia, so she, she and Uncle Walid are, yeah. are the two sort of main characters, but, mm -hmm. but all the other family members are there, whether you like it or yeah, not. Yeah, absolutely. No, so, you know, Nasreen, Alia's mm -hmm. sister and, and mums and all the various, mm -hmm. they all yeah. get together big time. Yeah. Was it such a family that you grew up in? Sure, yeah. I mean, I grew up in an extremely, um, I think, engaged and interested and invested family. And I'm um, a very talkative family and a very performative family. And when people ask me about um, why, you know, why theatre was something that I was drawn to, I think it's because I had very, very theatrical people around me. But I also think South Africa is a deeply performative country and that we're deeply theatrical as well. But I grew up in a, in a, um, a family of storytellers. And I, yeah, I love listening to stories and I love telling stories and I love hearing them. Um, and I love this, and I grew up sort of figuring out who was the best storyteller and how, 
you know, how these narratives are constructed and how people sit and how they can hold an audience and, mm. and do this without sort of television or music. And it's just literally about yeah. words and yeah, how you very, convey very something. consciously observing mm. sort of a childhood, which is not so common really anymore. No, I suppose, I suppose not. Having said that as well, um, my father owned video shops, so he still does when I was um, growing up. And so a large part of my life was spent within the realm of, of the fictionalized and the imagined. And so my first sort of grand ambition was, in fact, not to be a novelist, but was to be an MGM star because I wasn't allowed to watch most of the stuff that was in the video shop. But you could ask me anything about Gene Kelly at seven and I could tell you in, in kind of quizzical detail. And had you been asked anything at all about Nelson Mandela, um, Chris Harney, mm. all, you, would you have been able to answer those questions equally? How politically, 14, yeah, how no, politically inclined I was, was the family? Yeah, I think my, my family were... Well, I think as any as any family who is not white in South Africa at the time, you can't help but be politically um, invested at the very least. And so, I mean, I, I think different members of my family were committed in different ways and to different degrees. And um, but certainly, you know, those names were, of course, yeah, present. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And Uncle Walid, mm -hmm. who seems to have been the, the, he was the one that teaches earlier the word comrade, which yes. everybody's <laughs> shock at school. Um, he seems to have been the, uh, and you're, you, you're very comfortable in describing where he is and mm. uh, how he is, uh, down to the flak jackets that they were wearing, you know, <laughs> and, the, and the hair uh, hairstyles of the 90s. Yeah. Um, do, do you spend a lot of time in that sort of milieu? No, not at all. I mean, Walid really is, I don't know quite where he came from um, as a character. I mean, I had uncles around me, um, sort of my mother's brothers and my, and my aunt's um, husbands who were, sort of that age in in the 80s and in the 70s and um you know some of them were teaching at um livingston or so there would be you know that sort of relationship but um but walid is not really that character either um and what i really wanted to do with his character in some ways was i i was really fascinated by male friendships and i wanted to write to learn how to write male friendships and male conversations and yeah a particular type yes, of male friendship yes. which is extremely loving but not particularly um open yeah and yeah and male and, brotherhood and male brotherhood yeah, yeah. and that's that's because i'd spent so much time exploring um women's voices in my work before and so this became kind of yeah. how to do but that did as i really well. say male brotherhood what well, else would it be it's, if it's a brotherhood it's, but it's male conceptually isn't it? I'm, yes, I'm with yes, you yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, Livingston, we, schools are quite yeah, key are as well key. here. And I f I'm feeling that there have been some name changes. Well, yeah. So Alia sure. and Nazreen go to a private school. Yep. Um, a no-name private school. no-name private school. St. Michael's. Yes. Which is not a million miles from somewhere here in Cape Town. No, not a million miles. If but I were I to ask you what school you went to, oh, would I it went, be I went to Zonabim first and then I went okay. to St. Sabrin's. Okay. Um, having said that, you know... Uh, I think that most private schools in South Africa during that time looked and felt a certain way. I don't think there's much to choose mm. between them in, in many ways, except for the fact, of course, and this is another moment of complete diversion in, in the fictional sense, is that at, at my school I had a stunningly pro progressive headmistress who was wonderful, Tessa Fairburn, and she arrived when, in 1990, and um, she was fantastic. So, yeah, they, they weren't the same sorts of restrictions that the characters mm. encounter. But there was the sort of there was a sort of discomfort around schools. There was who, course, who fits yes. in where, what's going on. Yes. Model C suddenly gets slipped into yeah, the vocabulary. Course, there were all yeah. sorts of things, um, and it wasn't usual for young girls to escape from their school 
and to go to um, uh, <laughs> ceremonies in, in support of fallen heroes. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't. <laughs> like, like Alia and her sister did. Yeah, no, mm. it wasn't. So it was wasn't. that was that completely fictionalized? It wasn't. No, something? my sister and I did sneak out to okay. go down to the funeral, but my mother encouraged of it. Yeah, yeah. Of Chris Hani. It was it was the memorial service, not the funeral. But my mother completely yes, encouraged so. it. So in you know in the book. The, the character of Zarina is, is very upset about this, but my mother wasn't upset at all. In fact, she she thought it was fantastic. Mm. Um, and actually, at, I remember, um, and but lots about that that memorial. Um, that's a lot of that experience is completely fictionalized because we left before there was any, um, before any of the sort of uh, loosing started and that sort of mm. thing. So all you know, the stuff in the book is is completely imagined. Um, and in fact, I actually remember a friend of mine's. Um, father, a girl I was at school with, her father saw us in the cathedral and he was one of the priests in the procession and he stopped and he said, are you bunking school to come to the memorial? And we said, yes, Father Dyers. And he went, oh, God bless you, my child. <laughs> <laughs> all time, which we thought was fantastic. Yeah. Yes, I, I, absolutely. I mean, it's quite, a, it's quite a moment in the book. Um, I can only imagine that it must have been really quite difficult to maintain 1993 in mm. your head, mm. certainly having lived from 2008 to, to whenever it was that you finished this book, what, mm, last year? Yeah, last year, yeah. So to, In fact, we were finishing edits earlier this year. So, you know, yeah. to, to maintain the, the sort of the, mm. so that it isn't anachronistic, you know, mm. so that you make sure that everything is absolutely right. What did you do? Did you troll newspapers? What, what did yeah, you, there how was did you some manage of that. that? Um, there was some of that, and certainly in, in terms of wanting to get wanting to get certain things right and not to um, not to have sort of sort of things that were wildly wrong in mm. the book although there are things that are that are not accurate and that's also part of the fact that it's that it's fiction it doesn't have to quite adhere I think the stuff about what happens in in crossroads I, I don't know that it happens at the exact date mm. um, and that sort of thing so things have been tweaked accordingly um, but I have a you know I mean as I said in the beginning I have a nostalgia for adolescence so um, it was it was quite fun for me to do it in that way as well. And I also think, I mean, there's something quite idealistic about the book as well. It has to be, because it was such an idealistic moment for for the country. As, and so I thought, well, in that sense, it's, um, it's interesting to choose a character who's very young at the time and doesn't necessarily see the cracks and the fault lines and, and how things are going to unravel and unfold, but just has this grand, grand hope that suffuses everything and shifts things. Yeah. And you also have a thing for detail, I, oh. I could say. Okay. Um, there's a lot of detail. There's a lot of uh, your way with words. It's quite, I kept thinking, what, how can I, what can I compare this to? But it almost sort of, almost a bit sort of Dylan Thomas-esque. Oh. Maybe well, not, maybe I'll not. But, but yes, thank no, you very much. Absolutely. <laughs> but there's a, there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of description, and somewhere on a piece of paper, I had written down a couple of examples, but I can't now find them. But, but you indulge yourself. Yeah. Um, is, it, is it? Do you absolutely love it? Do you have to hold yourself back when you? Oh God! If there's an, yes. You know, if there's an oh. opportunity for an adjective, let's put it in. Yeah, no, I'm terrible that way. I'm I'm horribly indulgent, and you know, thank goodness I had Alison Lowry and and Fori Boisa both worked on the edits, and they were great at sort of helping to rein me back in. Probably with them, it, without them, it would be kind of littered with more with more adjectives and more detail. And I cut. Lots, and I always think with my work um, when it's not when I'm not doing monologue because there everything has to be pared down um, with this, so you can't really have those flights in the same way. But I often think with my work it needs to be sort of put in a sieve and shuffled around, and the adjectives should some of them should fall out, <laughs> and that's 
yeah. So but at the same time, it's what's, it's, what's, it's what adds the, the colour and the vibrancy and the smell and the sure. taste and the flavour. Well, it's those a balancing things. act, yeah. The, the, the sense of place is very important. I mean, you yeah. opened by saying that, you know, actually placing it, locating it, mm. um, it, 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 especially for somebody who's lived elsewhere in the world, mm. so that people can, from other parts of the world can think, what, what is she talking about? Where, yes. are, we, where are we now? What is yes. this road? What is this mountain? Yes. Quite important to keep reminding yourself of where Well, for you me, are. I think some of the greater pleasure I've had with, with works of fiction for myself, and I think that's the thing you also write, well, I, I do at least, I write towards what, what's going to give me pleasure, and I hope that another reader is going to respond to it in the same way, which is to say, I love to enter a space and think to myself, ah, this is when this book mentioned this, this is the street and this is what the restaurant looked like or it was this bookshop that they meant and look, there's the couch in the corner. And, you know, I've, I've, it's for me, it's one of the sort of grand pleasures when, um, when fiction is sort of realized in material terms and you find those spaces in the world and something sort of sparks and comes alive. So I wanted to, to give that to another reader as well who might never be in Cape Town or see those things. And, sorry, I'm just no, no, me too. I'm d- distracted by yeah. to see what's going on the screen. But the other thing which I absolutely love is is that it's quite girly uh, in a, in a very uh, in a very sort of controlled way. You know, right. it's not sort of too kitschy. But there's a lot of emphasis on the clothes and what they were wearing, yeah. and the sharing of the clothes and the food and the bits and yeah. the wedding. <laughs> um, there's a wonderful passage. So just just tell us about this wedding. Right. Um, oh, I do actually have a little piece here. <clears throat> Excuse me, um, where you, you, I think it's Uncle Walid who's mm-hmm. going through the Cape Flats, so who's going yeah. through uh, the townships. They drive past the curved grey ugliness of the power stations, past the sandy plains of the Cape Flats where the schools have spent the winter in a haze of boycotts and tear gas, moving further and further into deterioration, where houses eventually stop being made of bricks, roofs, or shingle, roads of tar, until eventually the materials are all scrap metal and cardboard, muddy, filthy streets, streams of water run thick with feces and coke cans. Children playing in thin, fraying jerseys, weak and wheezy against the gathering cold. Women standing with heads wrapped in fabric and worry. Men bleary-eyed from booze and depression. And through it all, a blue Mercedes-Benz with four boys armed with thermoses of soup and a tray of sandwiches. Walid has never felt more useless. I mean, you know, it's all there in that paragraph. We just, we just know it. We can feel it. Thank you. So, um, <clears throat> going back to, to the wedding... Yeah. Just tell us a, a little bit about the wedding. I mean, you have so been to one of those weddings. Oh, of course. No, I've been to hundreds of those weddings. I, yeah, no, I mean, those, it's a real weddings. full-on Muslim wedding. Oh, yes, of course. I mean, that was the, you know, that was my, my community and that was my world. And certainly when I was a kid, I mean, I'm going to those weddings since I was little. And when I was a child, my my grandfather um, was a doctor. And um, because of this, he would get invited to all these weddings. And so on a Sunday, this would be an act of babysitting as well, it would be to take to take me along to these weddings. And so that's what I would spend parts of my Sundays doing for, <laughs> especially during the summer months. And um, and these weddings were, you know, they were phenomenons of, of kind of precision and logistics and planning because there'd be, sometimes there'd be upwards of sort of a thousand people at one. And amongst and huge this events. particular one is the yeah. Christian table. Oh, yes, no, there's always a Christian the uncomfortable table. uncomfortable Christian <laughs> sitting wondering what they're doing there and trying to do all the right things right. and be yeah. suitably devout. And there are quite a lot of... Um, uh, um, what, what's the word? I forget how we do, define um, 
relationships across the cross-cultural, cross-color yeah, relationships? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that they're much more common than people understand yeah. or realize. And um, certainly, you know, in, in Cape Town's community, that intermingling of people who are Muslim and Christian, you find that in any family, really, um, historically. And then somebody will convert or somebody won't, and someone will marry across. And so, but having said that, they are, you know, I don't know about now because I don't live here any, anymore in the same way. But certainly when I was growing up, those divides, despite the crossover, were still very intense. And then within the Muslim community, the sort of crossover, the sort of divides between people who would identify as being Cape Malay and people who identify as being South African Indian, another divide. Um, and so I wanted to write about, about that as well and talk about relationships that, um, and friendships as well, mm. not just love relationships, but friendships too. Mm. And what happens when you, when you try and make friends with somebody who comes from a different world to you. Um, and that, that was such a kind of key thing growing up here is that people's lives were so unknown in so many ways. Um, There's always such a flight of imagination to begin to know somebody else's world yeah. and well, to know I, their life. I tell you what, I, I know this world a whole lot better now. Oh, well. <laughs> I feel as if I've been there. I've been in and out of the cupboards and the weddings and, <laughs> and all those things. It, you'll never be able to write a book like this again because um, you've done it now. You've, right. it, it feels like it's been with you for some time. And People said that to me about at a feet, though, so I think okay. it will be interesting. No, but I know, but sorry, I interrupted you. Go no, on. no, but, but it, it's, you know this particular moment in time yeah. and these experiences oh yeah because south africa has changed of course so yes. although you don't live here anymore might you come back might there be yeah i'd love to i mean my partner is not south african he's american and so um in many ways london i mean it sounds it sounds like a, a ludicrous declaration of privilege but london is a compromise between california and um and cape town so that's part of the decision-making process. So right here, right now, as we wait for the last yes. ANC rally, it, how, how are you feeling about South Africa? Can you, are you thinking, gee, I wish I was back there. Oh, so always, much material yeah. for, uh, <laughs> you know, a follow-up. Yeah. No, I mean, I always, I always long for home. There's, there isn't a part of me that doesn't. And that's why I try and come back home and, and spend as much time here as possible. And not, not just for the sort of the national landscape, but because, you know, I want to be with my family. But... Um, I mean, I, one has to remain optimistic, yes? This is the driving force. Absolutely, and one has to play one's part in the optimism yeah. and do everything you possibly can. Nadia, it's been a real treat. It's and so I nice know that, to see um, you again. Nancy. You and I are going to be talking... Sorry about that. No. I think uh, you and I are going to be talking very soon yes, uh, again. Yes, that's right. We, we, but we don't know where. It's at the... Booksellers dinner? No. It, yes, it is indeed. <laughs> but we don't know the details. We'll we'll try and get those details very soon. SFM celebrates 20 years. <laughs> You're listening to SFM Literature, and I think we're all a little bit all over the place because we're all waiting for President Jacob Zuma to be doing his thing very soon, which he will be. But in the meantime, let me tell you, I've been talking to Nadia Davids, and An Imperfect Blessing is published by Amuzi, and it really is its one wonderful read. Oh, thank, thank you, you very much. Thank you very much for having me. You're listening to SFM Literature. Stay tuned.